Today we're going to talk about 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 13. We're going to look at it a little differently uh, and um, kind of see the theme of sin and how David, uh, how God handles the sin of David throughout Scripture. Uh, so I'm going to read the passage and then, and then we can talk about it. So from 2 Samuel 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who had done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and, he had, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And you shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it discreetly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God that loves us despite ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your plan in our lives, for the ways in which you have knit us together in our mother's womb and worked that through us to where we are today. We thank you for what we have, the saints that we've seen that have lived in the past and the way that you have worked through their lives despite themselves. We pray that you would uh, bless this time now and encourage us through your word. Amen. So what we have here in these 13 verses of Second Samuel is David's life exploded on the page. Right, David's sin was finally exposed. So we, we're all very familiar with David's greatest sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah. And David was exposed. And we're going to see how the Lord exposed David's sin and how he dealt with David's sin throughout the whole Bible. So what we're going to see is the Lord doesn't hide sin. And in fact, he used it in David's life, and he uses it in our lives. Uh, there was a book that was written a couple years ago called, ago called The Great Dechurching. Uh, more people have left the church in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the Great First Awakening, the Second, Awake, Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. So 40 million Americans over the last 25 years have left our church. And he goes on in that book to talk about why they think they, why they, think they left. I think one of the main reasons why people are leaving the church, why our youth are turning 18, going to college, and not coming back to church, is because we're not modeling the way God dealt with sin. 
we tend to go through a cover-up mode. We tend to handle the sin. We tend to filter the sin. We tend to keep it quiet and put it away and try to put on our best selves. And that doesn't deal with the reality of who we are. Right? We're real people. We're broken people. Everybody that's walked through the threshold of this church today has come from a mess. We're messy people. And the people who don't come to church and don't come to the store don't want to be told who they're not. They want, to be, they want to come alongside people who are dealing with messes and dealing with struggles. Right? We need that redemptive process. We need the Lord to work in our lives, and we need to say we need to be real because we're going to sin, and we're going to see that through here. Right? We're real people, and we have real messes. And we get to see the gospel through David and through the work that he's done in David's life. <clears throat> so real quickly, or not real quickly, but we're going to kind of go through David's mess because we're all pretty familiar with it. And it really starts in chapter 11, um, this particular episode, where it starts out with, the, and when the kings go out in the spring to conquer, to fight, David stayed home. It doesn't tell us why he stayed home, but he'd stayed home. So we already know there's a flag in the field. There's something not quite right. The Bible, the Lord is calling out David in this situation. A few, a few verses later it says, and the Israelite army led by Joab ravaged the Ammonites, and they sieged Rabbah, one of the cities in, in um, that area. So maybe David was like, I've fought a lot. This is going to be an easy fight. You guys go do your thing. I need to rest. I've killed my tens of thousands. You know, he's done his thing. But we don't know why, but at least, you know, we can add a little bit of flavor to the story. But again, he's not out there doing his job. He's staying home. And so we have, you know, he's, he has idle hands, likely. You know, idle hands are the devil's playground. He is kind of setting himself up. He's re- resting on his laurels, maybe what something's going on. But we know that he's kind of setting him up for a mess, for a fall. Well, he takes a nap in the afternoon and late, early evening, in the night, whatever. He wakes up. He's walking around his palace, the top of his palace, top of his, his, his home. And then he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And he lusts after her, and he wants her. He sends his servants to bring her to him. Right? So he's lusted. He's coveted. He's starting to make his mess, and his mess is getting bigger. Well, Sab, we all know what happens to Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. David, now he goes to more of a cover-up mode because the mess is getting bigger. So he brings Uriah home, and he tries to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba. And he gets him drunk. doesn't work. And the second night gets him drunk again, and then Uriah doesn't go see Bathsheba again. And instead, he lies on the couch and sleeps with the servants of the Lord. Well, Bathsheba, when she got pregnant, she sent messengers to the king to say, I'm with child. David sent messengers, messengers to Bathsheba to say, hey, come and see me. Uriah is sleeping with the messengers in the king's palace. You can imagine how uncomfortable that likely is. We all watched all those royal palace movies and and series on Netflix, like, you know that the servants are gossiping. You know that they're talking about it. You know that things are, like, things are, it's not just David and Bathsheba. David's circle has slowly gotten bigger and bigger as he's dealt with this mess and he's laid this mess out. So, I mean, just, just think of the position that David put his servants in when Uriah had to sleep with them and they're like, we know what's going on here. At least some of them do, at least. So the mess gets bigger. Well, David, after two nights, he gives up, and he sends Uriah back. Uriah carries his letter of condemnation with him, his letter of his own condemnation, and gives it to Joab. All of a sudden, he brings the circle. The mess gets bigger. Right? David can't do it, so he has to bring in more people to help him cover his sin up. 
So David's using people over and over and over again to help him. And I think we can kind of relate to this as we deal with sins and we go to people as we're sinning and we're dealing with sin, we go to people that are going to allow us to sin. We go to people that have a permissiveness in sin that allow us to do it. And we're going to kind of talk about the pervasiveness and the insidiousness of sin through this whole situation. Then Joab, David tells Joab to put Uriah in the heaviest portion of the battle and then pull the troops away and let them take Uriah. So now the circle gets bigger. The mess gets messier. Uriah was one of the mighty warriors, you know, one of the great warriors. Uriah had to have been somebody because he had a house close enough to David's palace that David could see Uriah's wife taking a bath. So Uriah had some sway. People knew who Uriah was. He had a reputation. When he walked into a room, people were like, that's Uriah the Hittite. That so the warriors that were fighting with him were probably encouraged to have him with him, and then they pulled away from him. So can you imagine, like a fellow warrior, the band of brothers, and they're pulling away from Uriah. They're told by their general, Joab, to pull away and leave him there. So again, that conflict, that tension, that mess in using other people continues to grow. So David created a huge mess. And the mess was far messier than David even realized in that situation. I'm going to do a little bit of background, and Amber told me to not do this, but I cut it way, way back, so. (laughs) Um, We're going to see how pervasive sin is. So there's other storylines going on here. So the Israelites were fighting the Ammonites. So the Ammonites have always been a thorn in the Israelite side all throughout from the Exodus to where we are now. Just a couple years ago, they humiliated a couple of about a dozen Israelites when they went over to try to, you know, mourn with the new king because he just lost his father. Instead, they humiliated him and they sent them back, and they've been fighting ever since. But if we go way back, a couple hundred years back, we find out that the Ammonites were the, they're the descendants of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his youngest daughter. Again, sin and mass, not particularly related to the story. The king was going to fight that spring. But there's a sin that happened, that generational sin, that societal sin that keeps on going, that's pestering there. And so there's these currents that are pushing things. Again, we see it with Uriah. Who's Uriah? We always call it Uriah the Hittite. Well, who are the Hittites? Again, when the Israelites were going through the Exodus, and God was talking about the promised land, there was this mantra that, I'm going to put you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Jebu- uh, the Hittites and the Jebusites. It was this mantra. You say it, they say it over and over and over again. If you were to go and look, you would see that same phrase all throughout Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, when they start going in there. And even when he starts, God starts referring back to the taking over the promised land, it refers to that. And so it's this cadence. You always see it, that, those five tribes. So the Lord, when he told Joshua to go in, was to wipe out all the tribes there. But what did Joshua and the Israelites not do? They didn't wipe out all the tribes there. They left people there. In Judges 3, we see that, um, verse 4, the people who Israel had not wiped out, they were there for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And then we see a few verses later that the Israelites started marrying those tribes 
and they started following their gods. So we saw that they were tested and they failed. So we have this genera- generational sin, this societal sin, this, this willingness to marry women that weren't following their God. We see this generational sin, sins of incestuousness over hundreds of years. All these things peripheral to the story of David, but there's sin and that was not dealt with, that was allowed to, to happen, and it happened, and, and so it's, there's these drifts, these currents. When I was up at Moosehead, it was, a, the, it was cold, and it's a massive lake, about 760,000 acres, and it was all frozen, and since it was cold, the lake was expanding and contracting, and so I'd walk out to check the traps at night particularly, and the whole lake is like, you hear this, boom, and the whole lake kind of shakes, so it's like these massive like tectonic plates that are like moving. So you see these pieces of ice shifting, and then you come out the next morning, and where I had walked before, there's these tiny little cracks in the snow and tiny little cracks in the ice that weren't there before. And you start seeing some of the pressure ridges that are happening as the ice expands and contracts. So that's kind of some of that sin, that pervasiveness and fullness of sin that's in this world. You have these forces that are going on, independent of anything. That's what you see wars, you see battles, you see how nations are built. So sin is moving, and it's, it's funneling us to certain areas. So sin isn't just us, but it's, we have this other sin that's pushing us in these other areas. But coming back to us again, our sin isn't just particular moments of sin, particular moments of temptation, but we're born with what we call the total depravity of man. And we're not sinners because we sin. Again, this is kind of one of those lines that we hear a lot, especially growing up. Um, but we sin because we're sinners. That's who we are. That's the definition of our being. So we are going to sin because we were born in sin. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 7, says, Then where does this corrupt human nature come from? The fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. Right? We are conceived and born in a sinful condition. That's how we are born. That's every part of us has been tainted by sin. Our physical bodies, we have sickness, our mind the way we think, the way we logic, the way we use logic. It's all broken. It's all bent. It's different. It doesn't mean we're utterly evil, but it means that we are touched. Our sin touches us in every area. And then one of the proof texts is from Psalm 51.5, David's penitent psalm after he gets exposed and repents to the Lord. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Right? It doesn't mean that Bathsheba conceived his first son, David's first son with her, in sin. That was a sinful relationship. That was a sinful event that happened. David is saying here that he he was born in sin because in Job 14.4, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. If we are unclean and we give birth to unclean people and we raise unclean people and we are raised by unclean people, we are always unclean. There's no getting away from that sin. So we have our, our, our immediate sin, we have this sort of generational, long-term sin, and then we just have the brokenness, the, prav- the depravity that we're in. And then, so sin is pervasive. It's moving, it's all around us. And then First Peter talks about how the devil is prowling like a lion. Right? The devil is using it, he's using all these things, he's using all those areas, the immediate, the societal, the generational, the stuff we inherit from our parents, and he's using 
just our brokenness in general. He's using all those things. And it's not just him that's using it. Sin is using it. It's prowling for us. I don't know if you've read the screw tape letters, but it talks about how they, they use our inclinations to certain areas. They just make that path easier to go along that way. And it's subtleties, right? It's not, it's not David didn't do, didn't put, didn't put himself in a situation with Bathsheba overnight. That was a long period of time. I mean, it was months at least before things kind of shook out. So we don't, so it's, it's going, it's happening. And the Lord allows for those things to happen. We are not immune from sin, even after we become a believer. We're not immune from these things. It is always there. <clears throat> but the greatest line, one of the greatest verses is verse 13. Uh, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Right? David confessed his sin. He turned from his sin. He confessed it immediately, and he was forgiven immediately. And we're going to touch this on this a little bit, but not, we're going to go in a different direction in a second. But we need to repent of our sin. We know that we sin. We need to repent of our sin. It's always there. It's always impacting us. But we need to repent of it. We need to turn from it. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect going forward, but we have to repent of it. So, again, remember that. You've got to put like a, a, a mark on that, that you always need to confess your sin. But when David confessed his sin, this didn't turn into a fairy tale. This is not a Disney ending. Right? David created a mess. It was messier, and it was messier than he realized. And it continued to be messy. You read the rest of 2 Samuel, and his life is not easy for the rest of his time here. It is a terrible, terrible story. And it's heartbreaking to read it, and it's heartbreaking to see the failure of his family. And a lot of it is because of the sin that he committed. The sin that he was forgiven for, it still rolled. Right? We see the sin of our parents. We see our sin of ourselves. Those things continue to roll in our lives. Even though we're forgiven, even though we know it, they continue to roll. And God didn't handle David's sin. He didn't cover it up. He didn't say, oh, I've forgiven you. We're gonna, this is a little thing here. We're going to keep it in the closet just between you and I. David was a pub- public figure. And first of all, we see that this story was in the Bible. Right? God didn't cover the story up. But we also see, about 10 chapters later, in 2 Samuel 23... He lists his great warriors, the mighty warriors. And he starts with, you know, three great ones that were renowned because of the things that they did. Then he talks about a few lesser-known warriors, but they're still great. And then he lists a ton of warriors. And the very last warrior that he lists, Uriah the Hittite. David's saying, hey, this is a flag. Remember what David did? We know who Uriah the Hittite is. We know who Uriah the Hittite is. Right? I mean, I know that when Amber gives me a list to go to the grocery store, she's going to say, remember, Rice Krispies, bread, egg, cereal, um, yogurt. I'm probably going to remember the Rice Krispies and the yogurt, but I'm probably not going to remember one of the things in the middle, and I've already forgotten one of them right now. So, <laughs> right. But David put Uriah the Hittite there because he wanted him to say, David's a sinner. David's still, per- David's still performing my purpose and my plan that I had for him. But remember, he's still a sinner. He's still this guy that committed adultery. He's still this guy that killed a man that was worthy of death. If you read the law of Moses, 
David should have died several times over because of his sins. But the Lord had mercy on him, and the Lord continued to use him despite his sin. David isn't going to outsin the love of God. But God doubles down on this. So if we go to Matthew 1, Matthew 1, it speaks about the genealogy, and it sets up Jesus, the very first Bible, the very first book of the New Testament. It sets up Jesus being the king, the Messiah, the one to finally establish heaven on earth. What Canaan was supposed to be, Jesus is now the actual king, the perfect king. And Matthew 1.1, it calls Jesus the son of David. Okay, good. David's, you know, he's good now. He's clean. But if you look at 1.6, in the, in the middle of that genealogy, it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Again, flag. Look right back to who, who's Uriah. Uriah is the man that he killed, the man who David had sex, whose, whose wife David had sex with. So he's still saying, hey, David's a sinner. Look at David's a sinner, and he's still in my line. He is still part of the line of Joseph that the Messiah comes from. God didn't handle the sin. God didn't hide the sin. He kept the sin there. And what's even more wild is that he passes the line through Solomon. Right? And then Solomon is the, likely the last of four children that David, David had with Bathsheba. So if you look at the other guys in that genealogy, it's so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so. That cadence is broken with David. David begat Solomon the, from the wife of Uriah. And so it's not firstborn. It's not father to firstborn. It's not father to firstborn. All of a sudden, it's father to adulterous relationship to the youngest born son. Again, it's like God is putting an exclamation point on the brokenness of David, on the brokenness of his people, of his redeemed people. So we see that God didn't sweep it under the rug. He loved David. He had a plan and a purpose for David. Right? We want the fairy tale ending. We want to be the Aragorns. We want to be the Legolases. We want to be, we, and we want those people. But we're, we're more like the hobbits, right? We're more like Sam and Frodo and Bilbo. We're cowardly. We're broken. We keep on trying to get out of the plan that, pe- that God has for us. We're scared. We're, we're sinning. We, we, we're like Jonah. We want to jump off. We don't want to relate with the real people. We don't want to relate with the people that we're embarrassed by. And we see this theme throughout the Bible. We see it in Abraham and Isaac. They lied. They were cowardly, cowardly, even though they had the God of the Bible and he'd done great things for them. They had seen God in different ways. We see it with Moses. He didn't make it into the promised land, but God still used him. We see it with David, obviously. We see it with Solomon. He continues that generational sin that David had. We see it with Peter. Peter is a great example in the New Testament. He denied Christ, and Christ forgave him. And then Christ said, I'm going to establish the church on the rock, on Peter. But then, probably 10, 15 years later, Peter, who was the one that said, hey, Gentiles, hey, Jews, you don't have to eat like we used to. You can get rid of the food laws. All of a sudden, Peter starts getting impacted by the Gentiles in the church or some of the Judaizers in the church. And Peter starts stopping eating with the Gentiles. And he starts following some more of the ceremonial laws again. And those Jews impacted him. And Paul had to call him out on it publicly in the Bible. Right? It's in the Bible, Paul calling Peter out. Again, what did God do with Peter? He used him. Right? He, Peter had to repent. 
Peter had to turn from his sins, but the Lord used Peter. The Lord is going to use you despite your sins. You are, he's not going to bench you. He's not going to cut you from the team. He's not going to relegate you to the past. He's not going to put you in the closet and bring you out when you know, he needs somebody to just you know, clean something up in the back. The Lord is going to use you for the purpose that he used you. David said that he was born in sin, conceived in sin by his mother. But then we see in Jeremiah that Jeremiah was knit together in his mother's womb. So despite that born in sin, that, that total depravity that we have, at the same time, God is knitting that redemptive plan in our lives. And he knows that those two things are running parallel through our lives. He knows that we're going to commit that sin. He knows that we're going to do those terrible things. But he knows that we're also going to be used by God to do what he planned. So that's, how, that's the goodness, and that's the greatness, and that's the the love of God for our lives. Sin was not swept under the rug. So I want to put in a few practical um, ideas. So, So how does this affect us in some practical ways? Theologically, people don't want to hear an intellectual theology. They don't want to hear what justification is, the definition of justification. They don't want to hear the definition of sanctification. They don't want to hear a, a, a lecture on God's sovereignty. And this is for all of us. So we excommunicate people from this church, but we also talk about the perseverance of the saints. How do we allow those, the messiness of moving people out of this church because of sin and saying that you are excommunicated, you can no longer commune with us in the fellowship of God and the fellowship of the saints, how do we grapple with that in God's sovereignty? That's not just a problem for myself and Matt and Scott to deal with. Every single one of you who are members have taken that responsibility on for yourselves. If you want to have real conversations with your neighbors, with your coworkers, you need to grapple with hard theological issues. How does reality, how does our mess deal with, interact with our theology? How can a sovereign God allow for aggressive cancer? How can a God of the covenants allow for children not walking with the Lord? Those things have to go hand in hand. You're born in sin, you're knit together in your father's womb for a purpose. You have to deal with both things at the same time. And then that filters down to our evangelism. I mean, I know this is true of me, but how many times have we said, I can't witness to that coworker, because I just stabbed them in the back with their boss, or I'm lazy, or I've not been a good example. I've talked badly about my family, or I've made fun of this person. Now I'm going to share the gospel with them? Right, like we're covering up our mess in that situation. We're saying, my mess is greater than talking to you and obeying God's command to share the faith. And we're saying that my mess is going to keep that person from God's faith, from the faith, from, be- from, coming a be- from becoming a believer. But God is calling us to do his will. And always talk to our, our, to our neighbor and say, want to come to church? Why would I want to come to church with you? I hear you hollering at your kids all the time. I hear you arguing with your wife. You're lazy. You don't take care of your lawn, whatever. Like, you, we, you're, we're embarrassed. We want to cover ourselves up. We want to clean ourselves up before we share the faith. That's not how God works. In the Bible, right? God's like... David killed somebody. He, had adult, he committed adultery with his guy's wife. And he reminded us of it. And he also used David. So we have to know how to grapple, grapple with those things. 
we have to be repentant. We have to be humble. We have to be real. Right? We have to be real. If we want people to come through those doors and stay here, if we want our kids to stay in church, we have to be real. We have to acknowledge that we're, not, that we're broken. And that's the reason why we're not here. And it's scary, and it's challenging. It's, it's a terrifying thing to do. So, again, the first, go back to the, to the catechism again, because it's such a good, there's such good things to hit. And they're co- so concise and so full. So the first c- question in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death. My faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. If we think back about what we just learned about David, the Lord used all things in David's life to work together for his salvation, his sin included. Right? The, David is, the Lord is using all things in your life for your sin for your salvation. We belong to Christ. We belong to Christ before our sin, during our sin, after our sin, when we sin again. That's who God is saying. That is what God is doing with this theme of David through Scripture. Sin exists. My love exists. My plan for you exists. Your sin exists. Wash, rinse, repeat. He used David in the line of Jesus he said he was going to when he knit them together in his mother's womb, and he did, despite David's sin. So we might be tired and discouraged of dealing with sin, of dealing with the brokenness, of dealing with other people's sins. We have to be careful to not judge ourselves harsher than the Lord does when, for our sins. We can't discount ourselves and, and put ourselves on the bench or put our hand up and tell our coach to pull us off the field or whatever. I apologize for all sports analogies, but that's how I think. And we can't judge others harsher than God judged David and that God judged other sinners. If you were a non-Israelite and you walked into Jerusalem and you picked up a sign of the Jerusalem Times and you heard this story of what was going on with David, you look in the back pages, you know, see the gossip columns and talking about what's going on with David, you'd be like, who is this guy? How is he any better than Saul at that point in time? He wasn't. Well, but he was because of the Lord. So we need to remember that we need, it does not mean that we don't have strong boundaries with people who have sinned against us or with us if we have put ourselves in bad situations. We need to have strong boundaries. Your, your relationships might be forever changed because of the sins that you have committed or because of the sins have committed to you. You might have to have strong boundaries and not have that type of a relationship with that person. You might lose your job. You might lose your house. You might go to jail for the sins that you have committed. That doesn't mean that you are outside of the will of God. God's going to use all things, just like God used David, and God used the consequences of David's family over and over and over again. So the... 
God starts the New Testament. First person outside of Jesus is David. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, the last person mentioned in the Bible before, before Jesus is, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. David, go, David has a massive story arc in the Bible. And then God mentions David and how he used him. He's not mentioning David's sin here. He's mentioning how God glorified, sanctified David and brought him and used him for his purpose. And that's true. The same thing is true of us as Christians. If we are a Christian, God is going to use you. And just like he elevated David despite his sin in Revelation, he is going to be cheerful and happy to see you when you get to go to heaven. He is going to rejoice, and the rest of the saints are going to rejoice. Despite your sin, through your sin, he's going to love you. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, that you are a good God, that you are a God that loves us despite ourselves, that you are a redemptive God that uses our sins, uses our, the, the ways in which you've blessed us and the ways in which we've uh, defied your, your sin and your plan and your law. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your work, and we thank you that all things work together. Your name. Amen.